0: In this week's episode of the Limehouse podcast, we say hello to Ming Campbell, former Olympic athlete and leader of the Liberal Democrats.
1: Well, the role of the Lords um, is to hold the government to account, to be a a reviewing chamber, Um, but I have 28 years in the House of Commons, uh, and throughout that time I argued vociferously for the primacy of the House of Commons. I haven't changed my mind.
0: so wherever you are enjoy this week's episode of the limehouse podcast your liberal speakeasy and if you feel like telling your part of the world about us then please do so via itunes facebook or down the pub many thanks and enjoy the show
2: i Margarita, and estás escuchando Limehouse Podcast.
1: This is Paddy Ashton, and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. What a good name that is.
2: Hi, I'm Tom Brake, and this is the Limehouse Podcast. Hello, this is Nick Clegg, and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. I hope you enjoy it.
0: Because I'm not persuaded
1: by the case for war. This is what positive politics... Can do.
0: So welcome back to the Limehouse Podcast, guys. How have you been? How have you been doing? It's it's been a funny old week for me. As you can tell, I'm I'm a bit hoarse, a bit, uh, I don't know what you'd say, Brian Adamsy. i I'm a bit summer of 69. I used to play that old six string. (sighs) Or maybe Madge from Neighbours. Harold! I don't really know. It's a hybrid right now, although I am hoping that I sound more like Brian Adams, frankly, because he rocks the denim. And when the sun comes out, I'm going to rock the denim as well, guys, let me tell you. I mean, I think we should all start making bucket lists for this coming summer because it'll be gone within a week when it gets here. So my plan is to hit up the park as soon as it gets over 18 degrees with a beer. I'm talking straight out there, running out into the middle of the park with a beer in hand, screaming hallelujah. I might be in my speedos as well. Anyway, so this week's episode, yeah, it's going to be a good one. You're going to love it. We're talking to Min Campbell, obviously, and I, I suppose I was a bit naive going to the interview knowing, not knowing... Um, so sorry, no, sorry, a couple of weeks ago, rather, not knowing that he was so um, re- well regarded as an athlete uh, back in the day, obviously an Olympic athlete in the 60s. So I was like very uh, blown away by this. So we spent a couple of um, questions on that before we hit the old politics. And obviously the uh, death of Roger Bannister as well. So he had a bit to say about Roger as well, which is really cool. So I think you'll get a lot from it. And honestly, you know, athletes, we haven't had any athletes on the show before. So I was like two birds one stone yes we did boom but yeah it's been a weird week you know you know how much I love the arches a, r- a really strange strange old thing happened i was listening to it the omnibus and a character in it recently died from sepsis which is a, a a disease you can get an illness you can get from uh from from anything if you cut your hand like on a nail or what have you and a blood infection so this character died from it, and it was horrific, absolutely horrific. And I think something went off in me um, related to my, my my father who who died of meningitis. He died incredibly rapidly. Uh, he he got ill, and within six weeks he was gone. And that was four, about fourteen years ago now, just gone. And and it was it was a horrific time for 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 me and my family obviously but there was a moment in this episode of the arch is just gone where they were in the emergency um you know intensive care units and um it did bring an awful lot of it back and just when you think in life you know i'm getting on top of this i'm getting a handle of this i'm processing the loss of my father and all of this sort of stuff and I, i imagine there are a lot of you out there that have lost friends and family members and um and you you do feel like in life it's about just time, and it'll 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 get better. I think it's also about processing it. And I and I don't feel to if I'm perfectly honest, I don't feel like I have processed it on all of it completely. But though, anyway, blah blah blah. They were in this intensive care unit, and it did bring a lot of that back. You know that very obscure, abstract, grim horror when somebody tells you it's over or you've got to go in and say goodbye to this person. So I had to go and say goodbye to my dad, and uh, he was unconscious, but it was very strange. It was one of those things. You used it, it was so surreal, I almost exited my body. I almost felt like an actor going on stage and just saying some lines, whatever I could think up, and then just dreamily sleepwalk out of the room and then just go and sob somewhere. And, uh, yeah, that's a part of who I am. So you've been listening to this podcast for a while, and, and uh, yeah, so that's a kind of a day-to-day thing that I go through. Um, not, it's not, like, horrific. I don't, like, sob uncontrollably all the time. It's just sometimes you just sort of go, God, jeez, you know, we going to be a dad soon. Flipping heck, I wonder what my dad would think. Or sometimes you even catch yourself going, oh, I've got to tell dad that. Shit, you know. God, that's 14 years ago, and that stuff's still going on. I wonder how many of you out there like you know have have that where you've lost someone recently I I know that there are friends of mine that have lost um brothers or sisters um it's it's absolutely mind mind blowing you know what you what you go through how you process this stuff how you lead a normal life how you don't allow this stuff to turn you into something that you 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 you're, you're not and also, reaching out and talking to people about it and not feeling like you're a burden. You know, that is a huge part of it. So I just feel that if you are going through any of that stuff, it's, it's, it's good to talk. So that's why I'm doing it with you guys. Very selfishly of me, because obviously you, you've you got no call or response. So there you go. Here's my grief, how's yours? Um, anyway, look, uh, yeah. So on that note, I don't know. Maybe we could open up a dialogue there. You could always email us. You know, email email me away or find me on Twitter. You know, the Limehouse Podcast at gmail.com or it's at limehousepod. Pod. But yeah, look, enjoy this show. I, th- I think you will get a lot from it. And next week we've definitely got Gina Miller. Okay, I'm not ill. There's no snow. Well, I might, I might be still ill. Who knows? But yeah, there's there's no snow, so the interview is going to go ahead. And hopefully, we're going to be talking to. Um, um another another political party as well. So there's loads coming up for you guys. But yeah, enjoy enjoy the show and I will see you on the other side. Look after yourself and I want to be Brian Adams, not Madge.
2: Aware of you for so many years, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, that's a good thing.
1: Um, yeah. I
2: wasn't really aware until sort of like a couple of weeks ago that how I don't know how much of an athletic career you yeah, had, which yeah. is really bad. I feel really bad. No, no, no. Totally, it,
1: be careful. I'll put you on the rotor for my seat. <laughs> <laughs> but, Nothing um, missed out. Okay, come on, let's do it. What was the? I mean, what have we
2: started? We have started. Right, okay. Yeah. What was it like being? I mean, knowing you're going to the Olympics, what is that emotion? Can you even, I mean, to to bottle that, have you been able to bottle any of that?
1: Well, it it was (laughs) mildly something of a surprise because I had been um, a pretty reasonable Scottish athlete and I'd had a couple of um, matches for the United Kingdom. But in this particular year, 1964, everything absolutely went right. And it's a f- funny old story, but part of the reason I got to the Olympic Games was I ran in the women's athletics championships at the Old White City. And the reason for that is, you don't say it now, but in those days, uh, television wasn't satisfied with simply women's events. And so, in the um, programme for the women's championships, they put in some men's invitation events.
2: Oh, I see, yeah. Uh,
1: and I was summoned from Scotland to go and run. Uh, And I ran my fastest ever 100 metres that afternoon. And then a little later in the afternoon, I ran my fastest ever 200 metres, breaking the Olympic standard. Uh, And much to my surprise, and the surprise for a lot of... I mean, nowadays, they'd have immediately sent me off to the loo to give a specimen because they'd they'd have thought there was something quite wrong. Uh, And what then happened was the following week was the men's championships called the Amateur Athletic Association, shows you how long it is. And I went and I came to that. Uh, and I won the British, two, two, well, it's 220 yards, that shows you how long ago. I won the British 220 yards championship. Uh, again, beating the Olympic qualifying time twice, once in my heat and once in my final. Why was it? So, you- I mean, this all came, I mean, I'd always, at the back of my mind, you know, goes the Olympics. And I watched the 1960 Olympics. Uh, on television uh, pretty well eight days a week, yeah. <laughs> 25 hours a day. And every athlete has this kind of aspiration. But suddenly, just like that, there I was going to the Olympic
2: Games. Was it just a set of, of, of motions almost? It's like, so just like a chain a of chain events so you didn't even see happening. It suddenly, oh, I can run
1: very, yeah, you know, yes, what's I've happening? R- I have run particularly fast on this occasion. Um, and, I mean, it was so, I mean, the death of Roger Bannister just the other day, uh, reminded me that... I mean, he was, was running in the, in the early 1950s, I was running in the early 1960s. Not much had changed, really, in athletics. For, mm. for, although as I was going out in 1967, we were very suspicious of the fact that drugs were being used. But it was amateur, and it was amateurish uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, and at the time I went to the Olympic Games, yeah, I mean, I look back a bit, God knows if I ever, ever had any time to sleep. Um, I was doing... Um, a part-time law degree, because law was a, sec- was a second degree in Scotland at that time, so yeah, I already yeah. had an MA. I was doing an LLB part-time. I was doing a part-time, what we call an apprenticeship, going to an office in between classes. I was the President of the University Union, <laughs> and I had a girlfriend. <laughs> uh, and if you would say to anyone now, uh, look, go to the Olympic Games, uh, but by the way, you have to do all these side events. People just laugh at you.
2: But that's, lo- that's life, isn't it? Especially when you, what, you must have been in your
1: early 20s? Yeah, I was, uh, what was I, was 23 when I went to the ball in 1941. There you go. I, I was 23, tons of energy. And what makes me go back to Roger Bannister, who became a friend of mine, is the fact that that's what we did. We did our sport alongside our academic Uh, life as well and rather like him, although I do not claim to be as distinguished as him but in 1967 when I came back from the United States where I'd been a postgraduate in law school at Stanford University uh, and in the course of which I had broken the British 100 metres record twice in a week uh, I came back to wet dreary (laughs) autumn Scotland with no indoor facilities yeah, uh, where the cinder tracks, because it was as long ago as that, were either frozen or sodden. Uh, and I said to myself, well, I'm going to stop. So I actually stopped at what was really the pinnacle of, of my career, mm. although I don't for a moment suggest that it was as distinguished as Roger's, because but you did he, have, really, he really yeah. is... A, he really was a one-off, no question.
2: Oh, well, I'd like to talk a little bit more about Roger if that's yeah. okay, in a bit. In a bit. But sure. certainly you, you had the 10.2... 10.2, 500 se- metres. Well, were you the, champ- the fastest man in Britain for how many years?
1: A seven, 67 to 74.
2: That's unbelievable.
1: The race in which, the second time in which I did it, there were, um, it, it was run, <laughs> rather curious, in, in California, in something called the San Joaquin Valley, there are a number of... Towns, uh, Fresno and Modesto. And both Fresno and Modesto had very good athletics tracks. Don't yeah. ask me why. And the weather there, conditions would be absolutely perfect for sprinting between about half past five and half past seven in the evening. Uh, and the race in which shot the second time, I, I equaled my own record that I'd broken the week before. The first two men in the race ran 10 point flat. That was the world record. The next couple ran 10.1, and I ran 10.2. So I was two yards behind the world record.
2: Good God. (laughs) Isn't it funny, the the, the absolute minutiae? Of course. It must be unbelievable. And of course, the
1: difference now is uh, they've all weather tracks. And in addition to that, of course, they have electronic timekeeping. Uh, It was still manual in my time. Okay. So people are inclined to think, well, the manual times are perhaps less accurate than the Mm. modern ones... But my counter to that always is well, we didn't run on all weather tracks or have all weather tracks to train on. We had to train on wet cinders quite often.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just, I, you know, I watched the chariots at fire, chariots yeah. of fire, and, and what have you. And I always just think, because I, I was thinking about this the other day, what, the, the only bit of running I ever did in my life when I got anything mm. was a 200 meter sprint, uh-huh. um, or maybe 400, I can't remember. Well, you don't sprint well, you meters, would. Well, you would, because
1: the 400. 400- yeah. Uh is, shall we say, rather more intense than yeah.
2: 200. But I remember I was at school. I was like 13 years old. I got halfway round the track and something hit, and I was right at the back. Yeah. And just something in me was just like, William, what are you doing? Just run. Just absolutely run. So I just came from last yeah. all the way to second, but didn't qualify for the next round because you had to finish first. Yeah. But I remember being in that moment yeah. of just complete, like, numb ecstasy. Yeah, sure.
1: Do you Yeah, Bannister, do you that? Bannister's book is well worth reading um, because he talks not just about the physical challenge but, but the mental challenge. Yeah. And there's a... I mean, I don't know, necessarily think it's language he would have used today, but he said, in the last 200 yards, my mind was ahead of my body. Yeah. Uh, and certainly once or twice in my life, bracing life, um, I felt that I was... Um, not a nirvana. I mean, that's too too extravagant. I know what you mean, though. But yeah. uh, in, yeah. in a situation in which I could do pretty well, anything I
2: like. You almost felt like within yourself. That oh, you, indeed, Right, yeah. boom. Yeah.
1: I mean, the great, the great thing in sprinting, and I was actually not very good at that, is to stay relaxed. Okay. If you look at the great sprinters, you'll find the jaw, the jaw wobbles oh, because yeah. they keep so relaxed. I'm afraid, uh, if you look at old film of me, um, uh, I'm not exactly the most elegant sprinter <laughs> uh, and I was inclined to get a bit tight and okay. of the tighter you are the more effort you put in the less successful you are you remain relaxed on an, two or three occasions I remember just actually staying relaxed the yeah. last of it was in a stadium in Budapest the Net stadium a famous okay. football stadium Yeah. and I ran 200 metres there in 20.7 and that was just point two behind the, the UK record and that was an occasion which I felt I could just run and yeah. nothing else nothing else got in the way yeah.
2: and do so do you, do you have any thoughts on Roger because I know we, I yeah
1: think... I, well I was extremely fond of him um, I was when I was 25 uh, after the 1964 Olympic Games the government set up a sports council, created a sports minister for the first time man called Dennis Howell, famous mm-hmm. figure uh, he was the chairman of it uh, and there was a council round about him. Uh, and at age 25, from Scotland, I was sent to be a member of this council, surrounded by Roger, uh, Roger Bannister. Walter Winterbottom, ex-England football manager. Okay. All sorts of people like that. Yeah. And I was not surprisingly a bit intimidated by it all, but Roger went out of his way to be friendly and welcoming. Yeah. And that's when our friendship started. I didn't see a huge amount of them but any time I did it was uh, you know, there were no preliminaries necessary we just picked up where we left off yeah. last time I saw him was last summer at Hampton Court um, I have the good fortune to be what's called a member of the Companion of Honour it's a decoration which the Queen bestows uh, and uh, he was there with his wife he's there in a wheelchair and so was Seb Coe, because he is one of these and so is Mary Peters who yeah. was a gold medalist uh, in, in the Munich Uh, games and since then the Lord Lieutenant of Belfast, all of these things. And it was a very good photograph in which we all, Roger in front and Mary, Seb and myself behind, and as I said to someone, spot the odd one out. Spot the odd one out. And they said, "Why?" And I said, "Well, I'm the only one who didn't win a medal at the Olympics." <laughs> <laughs> but I was glad to be in such distinguished company.
2: Yeah, and the Olympics—that's something we've just had the Winter Olympics yeah. and what have you. We, we've we've had—we'd have our best ever Winter Olympics. Yeah. Do, you, do you feel that our, we are getting better and better as a country?
1: Yeah. Well, we're spending more and more money on it. Yeah. Uh, and it does raise uh, interesting questions because for most people myself included I mean I got to the I, I, I was a member of the British team that got to the final of the sprint relay in the 1964 Olympic Games uh, we came 8th out of 8 but we broke the British record in doing so and for me then if you asked me about indeed you did ask me about, about the Olympics um, to be selected almost was the pinnacle of my career I bet yeah now, if you win a medal, you get an open-top bus and you go to see the Queen. But you're selected and come fifth in the final or just miss out on the final. The local newspaper may say what a good person you are. Yeah. But th- there's no real recognition. Uh, and I think that uh, UK sport is seized of this now. Uh, and although the primary purpose is to invest in sport at all, um, in all Olympic disciplines, in order to win medals. I mean, that's exactly what this is all about, Once should be quite upfront and honest about it. I think there is an understanding now that one's got to look a little broader, a little wider. And of course, it's pretty brutal, because uh, as you probably know, or may have seen, um, uh, if you don't have medal capability or potential, then you get your money taken away. Yes, and there have been beautiful. some pretty. Stag, I think basketball's the latest. Yeah, uh, and oh yeah, it's I mean, Yeah, and I mean, some of these sports have enormous community advantage. Uh, they give people self-respect. Uh, they often keep them off smoking or drinking or drugs or whatever. Yeah, uh, and it's basketball's particularly prominent in some of the less or more disadvantaged areas in the United Kingdom. So I think we have to... These This should not... This is not a binary choice. These two should be able to march side by side. Yeah.
2: No, and also, yeah, it's com- exactly, absolutely right. Community. I mean, I think of my... Nephew up in Scotland. Whereabouts? Uh, uh, Dunfermline. Uh, oh, right. Uh, well, a tiny little village near Dunfermline. Name of? Of Carnie um, Hill.
1: Oh, in, right. Exactly. Area. I, I oh. drove. I drove past it the other day. Oh, you Because I was a member of Parliament for North East Fife. Oh, well, yeah. The top exact. half of Fife. So yeah. I knew all the rest of Fife. Yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah, yeah, so it's a sweet little village. I, I, I miss Scotland tremendously. But I mean, my 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 nephew's are an absolute
1: sports fanatic, yeah. and he. I don't know what he'd do without it. Yeah. But um, so. You heard... Can I just say, uh, what time is it? Because I've got to show my face downstairs. It's 22. 22, OK. How long, how long have we got? About 15 minutes. That's yeah. perfect, yeah. yeah. Is, that, is that all right? Well, and when... I'll try and give you shorter
2: answer. OK, that's all right. When, when, did, when did politics come into your life then?
1: Well, I was doing it at, at university. I was part of a generation uh, at Glasgow University uh, where politics was the in thing for students to be engaged in, and debating in particular. Glasgow university a long tradition of winning the Observer Mace, that's the inter-varsity debating competition. And I was a contemporary of Donald Jewers, who became Scotland's first minister. Mm-hmm. He was the first first minister. And of John Smith, who was a leader, leader of the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. And also Alexander Ervin, Derry Ervin, in whose former residence we're talking, uh, who, who became the Lord Chancellor. Now, they were all Labour, and I was a uh, liberal. That was my, my parents were Labour and so that was my first act of teenage rebellion to join the Liberal Party doesn't sound like very much (laughs) but it was great it did cause the old raised eyebrow shall we say from my parents Um, and debating was the thing and so I had been president of the University Liberal Club before I was president of the union Um, and so my and and the debating was done on a political basis because there were six different political clubs six debates a year And uh, every one of them, one of the clubs, took the uh, responsibility of being the government and bringing forward measures. And so it was like a mini House of Commons, a bit pretentious in in truth. But it (laughs) certainly uh, trained you into how to deal with interventions (laughs) and and things of that kind. Um, So I was involved in, in that. Uh, And then I went away to, uh, I went to Stanford for a year as a postgraduate in the law school. Um, And uh, sport was the big thing while I was there. Uh, Not much work in the law library, I confess, but then my scholarship was a sort of general one. Uh, And not a sporting one, because if you're a graduate, you can't run for, in the uh, American University Championships to stop British universities buying in graduates from all around the world yeah. a bit like happens in the boat race now Oxford and Cambridge um, and so I came back from that and I had one of these conversations with one's parent um, about <laughs> well what happens next and I said well um, I want to go to the bar uh, and my father said well I'll fund you for the 12 months of pupilage. you do your pupilage first in school and then get caught and um, and so that's what concentrated my mind for 12 months. Uh, although I did play a bit of rugby, I once played in the final of the Middlesex Sevens. So the Middlesex Sevens used to be a huge social event for uh-huh. 60,000 people. Yeah. Shabbily and chicken legs in the, in the car park and a lot of uh, toil, sweat and trouble <laughs> on, on the, right. on, on the yeah. field. We got to the final, but we were beaten by a lot of young younger men. Um and then I really want to concentrate on, on making a living. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and I met my wife on Friday the 13th of March, 1970. And we were married on Friday the 12th of June, 1970. So we met, engaged and married all in three months. And that was 40... 40, 40 coming up 48 yeah. years ago. Yeah, that's,
2: that's pretty good going. Yeah, yeah. not bad. No, not bad. I was very... My, my wife and I met in got married pretty quickly it as is, well. Yes, but, um,
1: yeah. and, and at that point then, it was the work, the bar, trying yeah. to make a success of it. Yeah. Um, and my wife happened to run a, a charity event that David Steele came to. And David Steele said to her, we must get Maine to stand for Parliament. And she immediately thought this was a good idea. And so I was approached to stand in the 1970 general election for the Liberals in place called Greeno and uh, I had to say well I'm very sorry I'm getting married that day (laughs) (laughs) Okay, (laughs) yeah, so that was that but they came back to me and so I stood twice in 1974 in Greenock and Port Glasgow because that was the name of the constituency Um, I became the chairman of the Scottish Liberal Party in 1975 for a couple of years but I was still doing my legal work and I had a rule I never um, gave up any legal work for political activity the legal work always came first yeah and I was adopted for a constituency called, which was then called East Fife, later North East Fife, which is the top half of Fife. Um, and of course, uh, we had to build it up from scratch, uh, or not quite, but we had to build it up and we did it through local government. We fought every local government seat. Eventually we ran the local council. Um, and I was finally, I, t- I had three shots at it, 1979, when Thatcher came in, nineteen, uh, will I get it right? Uh, let's stop with a I, 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 I stood in. I, I stood in 1979 when Thatcher came in for the first time. I stood in 1983 under the banner of the SDP Liberal Alliance, and lost by two thousand votes. Hmm. We were winning the week before, but we could tell in the last week how it tailed off. You can tell the way people react to you on the doorstep. And on 1987, third time of asking, I won by 1,441 votes. Yeah, my goodness, yeah. And, um, I mean, that was pretty damn close, I can tell you. Yeah. And I came here for five years, and my, in my mind it was all perhaps to do two parliaments and go back full-time at the Bar. I went on doing legal work so far as I could, albeit that I was in London and the work was in Scotland. Uh, <clears throat> and in 1997, um, by this stage, Blair and Ashdown uh, were having a lot of close conversations on the assumption that Blair would not win but would not get an outright majority perhaps or even a narrow majority Mm. and Major of course between 92 and 97 had suffered from the fact that there had a nominal majority he didn't because he had these people he called the bastards who were Mm. forever undermining him when it came to Europe and in that period um, in uh, 1996 it must have been I was offered the high court bench in Scotland and I went to see Roy Jenkins who was a great friend and mentor bet
2: he changed his mind well he? he did actually yeah. and,
1: and he said um, well he said I went to try the voice uh, in my career he said I was offered the editorship of The Economist at one time and I turned it down and 18 months later I was the Home Secretary so he then said to me as uh, and Peter Mandelson has now confirmed this in the book he then said to me Um, if there is uh, an agreement between between the Lib Dems and Labour then um, you would probably be the Defence Secretary the Lib Dems would have two places uh, one for you and one for Alan Beeth who would probably be the um, Chief Secretary to the Treasury would have two places in the Cabinet one of them would be for you so uh, we went into the 1970 (laughs) 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 1970 rubbing our hands uh, in the desperate hope that Blair would not have an overall majority. Well, he got a majority of 160. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, that was, that was game set and match. Yeah. And I then had a period of some doubt as to whether I wanted to go on. And of course, I already turned down the High Court bench. So that rather was a black mark yeah. against me.
2: Just to interrupt quickly, because it's, uh, well, I know we're quite tight on time. Um, obviously, the debate, the amendments going through now in the uh, upper uh, house. How how is it going for, with in terms of Brexit? We've got to turn it over to Brexit at some point, I suppose. How is it going? The, the debate. Going, well,
1: what is interesting about, about the debate? There's no filibustering, no. Uh, which we you know we were threatened with hell hell and damnation if anyone filibustered. No question of that. But a lot of people want to speak, mm. and actually the original timetable is proving very very difficult to adhere to. I bet. Uh, and there are some, uh, I mean, some really good speeches. Uh, and some of it is intricate some of the legal stuff uh, is very very intricate indeed so much so that I've taken refuge in form of affairs and defence well there are some very bright people around uh, who understand I mean I understand but I don't you know entirely uh, uh, competent when faced with David Panic, for example one of the great shining lights Indeed. of the English Bar yeah thank, uh, him and uh, Gina Miller thank goodness for those two exactly Yeah. Uh, so it's going slowly yeah uh, but it's very thorough mm-hmm. it's pretty good tempered the government's responses are pathetic yeah I, I completely agree the, the, I mean the government's responses and the Lords really really are pathetic yeah I mean it, it's embarrassing sometimes I think
2: yeah well the whole ref, the whole thing I feel personally is rather embarrassing mm-hmm. since June's and 16, it just feels like a slide for me into the pits of of total embarrassment but um, I mean what's the role now of the Lords long term?
1: Well the role of the Lords um, is to hold the government to account, to be a a reviewing chamber Um, but I had 28 years in the House of Commons uh, and throughout that time I argued vociferously Mm. for the primacy of the House of Commons I have not changed my mind the House of Lords, important though it is, is in those terms subordinate to the will of the elected House and one has to remember that all the time. Yeah. It doesn't stop you prodding and pressing and trying to hold the government to account and uh, if, if, if you like, um, as forensically as you can, examining the proposals which have come up to us of course from the House of Commons already yeah. on the Brexit Bill.
2: Yes, yeah, some of those amendments have been absolutely crucial. I met Dominic Grieve by complete accident the yeah. day after his amendment had gone through, and um, shook his hand. He said he felt like Mick Jagger. That, <laughs> Everyone the, was stopping and shaking his hand.
1: There are some very—I mean—there some very brave people in the House in the House of Commons. Yeah. Uh, I bumped to one of them this morning, Anna Soubry, and, and, and people like Dominic Grieve, um, and I think the temp- its changing in this sense that um, Keir Starmer. Who's been running this on behalf of the Labour Party has been nudge, 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 nudging away at Corbyn. He's finally got Corbyn to start talking about customs union. Mm. And I would be very surprised if by the time this bill is completed with us and goes back, that Labour's position will have hardened somewhat to Mm -hmm. the extent of saying single market as well. I'd be very disappointed. If they don't reach that conclusion,
2: what's your what's your what's your sort of I don't know your emotion or your thinking behind a customs union that the the Labour Party has, like you said, pushed towards. I don't even know what it means really.
1: Well, I mean, they want a separate uh, arrangement, and of course, this is right back to what Barnier and Juncker and Tusk say. You can't have. Part of it. You can't have your, well, much overused metaphor. You can't have your cake and eat it. If you want to be in, you've got to be in properly. Yeah. Uh, and I always test the act. I mean, people when I say, oh, the European Union's behaving disgracefully. People should ask themselves this. Supposing Germany had said, we are leaving the European Union. What attitude would the British government be taking towards that? we would not be rolling over. We'd be saying there are obstacles which stand in the way. Yeah. If you want to go, you can go, but you can't go and continue to enjoy the benefits. If you, you know, if you were again, much overused metaphor, if if, if you want the advantages of the club, then you've got to pay the subscription. Mm,
2: yeah, no, completely. And um, how do you feel that the Liberal Democrats, I know that they're so, they're, you know, very low in the polls at the moment, 8% at any given time, or perhaps lower. Where do you think their fight back is?
1: Well, um, I get, um, I'm, I'm told off when I say this uh, by senior <laughs> Liberal Democrats, uh, but I have said it publicly. My view is that it was going to take, from 2015, it would take us 10 years to get back to Parliaments. Uh, Vince Cable's doing extremely well. We've got limited resources, as you know, both in terms of numbers and in terms of uh, financial backing and all of that. But Cable's doing extremely well. He's touring the country. I mean, he doesn't have any weekends off now. He tours the country. He goes from one end of the country to the other, yeah. and his uh, accounts, for, or his account of when he comes back, is just astonishing. How much enthusiasm there is, particularly among young people, yeah. and that's something we've got to to build on. Yeah.
2: I um, mean, it's just since the two thousand fifteen uh, election, it was just must have been heartbreaking for you to see Paddy on Question Time and to see that the. the Oh, the collapse geez. of the party like that. Also, it was hard for me, but I mean... Well, I,
1: I, I, was, I was on television too, and I, I, um, I am naturally cautious. So when Ashton said he he's going to eat his hat, <laughs> and I was having other information put in front of me, I thought, some hat. <laughs>
2: yeah, that was uh, some, some thing, though. I mean, I, I can't... I did talk to him about it, and I did ask him whether or not, you know, how, what was going through his head at the time. I mean, to see if the party well, I, just I, fall I, apart I, in front of him.
1: Yeah, like. I, well... Um, I mean there had, some signs had been there mm. I mean we never really recovered from the question of the fees mm. and of course it, it was it was unfair but of course unfairness, you can't plead unfairness in politics, because Blair said he wouldn't introduce them and then did, he said yeah. he wouldn't increase them and then did but no one thought about that uh, and um, now I mean Theresa May is looking at them again but I don't think they're going to be abolished altogether mm. and we never really recovered from that and I, for the first time in my life I voted against my own party because I'm the ch- I was and still am the Chancellor of St Andrews University and in 2010 I stood on the steps of the Students' Union at St Andrews surrounded by students uh, uh, who were either voting for me or working for me uh, and signed this pledge and so, when it came to the question of w- would I support w- what had become the government position, I said no. Mm. I did it with a heavy heart because I, w- I wasn't helping uh, the party in, mm. in the short term, perhaps not in, in the long term either. But I took the view my, my personal circumstances as Chancellor, my responsibilities were such yeah, that I, I had try, I mean, I either had to vote for the government. Uh, uh, well it's one choice really if I voted for the government I would have to resign as as Chancellor and I wasn't inclined to do that no, no. I've got to go Five, yeah. what time is it 5-2 5-2 alright ok got,
2: have, have you got enough uh, yeah I mean I just wanted to ask you what, what, what was the highlight of leading the party
1: really a well, the highlight for me politically was Iraq mm-hmm. um, because uh, this is slightly self-serving but Um, Charles Kennedy got married and went away to Bali for four weeks. I was the foreign affairs spokesman and I was left behind. And that was the start when uh, what we began to hear, forgive yet another overblown metaphor, but the beating of the war drums in Washington. Yeah. Uh, And I was left on my own. And I essentially... um, ran with the policy that we couldn't possibly be part of it because it wasn't legal and the inspectors were still getting on with their job and uh, and, and all the rest of it uh, and then we, we came back, we had a party conference um, in which the party was resoundingly against and that was a big moment but then unfortunately shortly after that I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma yeah. and had to have chemotherapy and be in Edinburgh but I, I went on being the foreign affairs spokesman. I stagger out to Newsnight and things like that. And I also have an ISDN line in a box at home, so I can do studio quality. So I really worked pretty damn hard during yeah. it. But the great advantage for me was it took my mind off my illness.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh,
1: absolutely. And um, for me, that period is the one that I remember with most... Well, forgive pride, but you know I, that's one of that, that's a period in, in which I think I really pulled my weight. No, absolutely. Uh, highlight of being the being the leader. Uh, well, it, it was difficult because right from the very start it was age, 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 age. You know, too old. Now, of course, Corbin's older than I was, but that's no, <laughs> neither here nor there. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. Actually, the last conference speech I made. Um, I, I thought that was pretty damn good and one or two other people did too and what, were, what was the uh, the basis? well the theme was, was about opportunity I mean mm-hmm. I've had three lives uh, sport, the law and politics there were just as good sprinters as me uh, walking down the main street anywhere who never got the opportunity I was fortunate I went to the bar because my father was willing to support me financially to do so um, and I came into politics. I led the party of uh, Gladstone, quite a yeah. long way back, uh, Asquith. And I took Asquith's seat back, of course, because East Fife was his seat, so I was sort of a particular affection for that. Uh, and um, Lloyd George as well. And it, it just seemed to me that, it just seems to me that uh, I've, I mean, Life is never smooth, for God's sake. There are ups and downs. Uh, but I've got no complaints. Mm. And I think that opportunity lies uh, at the very heart of the things that I've been able to do. And I would like that opportunity to be spread out as far as possible. And I don't think we're meeting that. We're letting young people down. I don't just mean about buying houses or things like that. Uh, I mean, not... Uh, in, in terms of sport... It, it, it's very difficult if you're a poor voter and you live in Inverness I mean that kind of thing uh-huh. um, um, the law is it's less so now but it certainly was in my time a middle class profession I mean a large proportion of the people at the Scottish Bar have been to Oxford or Cambridge mm-hmm. um, I was, as I think I've said to you to I was at a large university for six years and then Stanford um, and even that was an opportunity yeah. Uh, and I just look at my own life and say how bloody lucky I've been. No, absolutely, yeah. And therefore, I would like to give see that we had a system which provided people with the kind yeah. and quality of opportunities which I had.
2: Yeah. Is there a book on the horizon or do you already have it? There a? is an autobiography. There um, is.
1: Yeah, I got yeah. castigated in it because I didn't do enough about politics. But Hodun and Stouter were much more interested in my early life and things like that. Yeah. So the book was less political and more about me and my um, experiences and foibles and yeah. all of that.
2: That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, thanks so much okay. for your time. pleasure <laughs>